Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, this episode is coming out nowhere near Mother's Day. Nope. But we're talking about maternity leave. And the thing is, I'm glad it's not coming out around Mother's Day because everyone always waits until Mother's Day to talk about maternity leave. Mm-hmm. But you know what, Caroline? Mm. Not to get too soapboxy too soon, but this is a year-round issue, especially in the United States, that we need to just never, ever stop talking about. Oh, I know. It's it's uh, not to not to give a spoiler away, but uh, it's an incredibly depressing, complicated topic. Uh, I, growing up uh, as a young person, just assumed that maternity leave in our country was a thing. That you were assured maternity leave and you, I, I didn't have, you know, as a really young person, I don't have concepts of like benefits and paychecks and all of that stuff. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, but I assume like, well, of course, like a woman who works has a baby. She naturally gets maternity leave because that's how the world works. She, she continues to get paid for it. Uh, and everybody's healthy and happy and she goes back to work and her job is secure. Oh, and didn't you imagine too maternity leave being just a glorious vacation where you're hanging out with a baby all the time, like extended babysitting. Yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, we knew nothing when we, we were children. We knew nothing. We knew nothing. Yeah. It's not until I got older and, and had, and, and of course I'm developing more awareness of like, oh, maternity leave is not like this utopia that exists, period. Uh, but as I got older and my friends and coworkers started having babies, um, it became painfully apparent watching them go through it how heart-wrenching and difficult this whole process can be and I, and i realized that yes this confession of mine of growing up ignorant of maternity policy can make me sound just well ignorant um but it's because i just assumed that as a younger person that we were better than that well and i more recently spent a an afternoon with a group of women where I was the only one who doesn't have kids and maternity leave came up and listening to all of these women who have are, are from a, have a diversity of professional backgrounds at various levels in their careers and just hearing the stories of how their companies, some of their companies, whom you have heard of listeners that shall remain nameless, just the paltry mm-hmm. maternity offerings some of these women were given and how they had to essentially, you know, piecemeal mm-hmm. together at least a few weeks off to try to manage it. And not to mention, too, you know, the question of paternity leave, which we're not even going to have time to get into in this episode. And even if you are someone listening who has no intention of ever getting pregnant whatsoever, this is still an important issue, I think, for all of us to understand because it touches on women in general and how they are seen and their place in the workforce at large also issues of race, class, and education that mm-hmm. add deeper layers onto this um, and really unpacking how disturbing statistics come to be. And for this episode, too, I know we have a lot of international listeners. We are going to be focusing more on the United States simply because, as is well known, the U.S. has 
the most dismal maternity care provisions, i.e. none, um, in the developed world. Yeah. And since those statistics are trotted out every Mother's Day, um, we didn't want to just focus on the numbers, but really figure out how this came to be. How did we end up in this mess? And first, so we want to talk about why we are choosing to talk about maternity leave or pay and paid family leave generally now rather than as some kind of Mother's Day special. Right. I mean, it's been in the news quite a bit the last several months, um, kicking off really in January when President Obama gave it a nod in the State of the Union. And he positioned paid leave as not just a women's issue, but a family issue, which I hate to say is really the only way (laughs) that this country has achieved any type of of sanctioned leave paid or unpaid for for people who work. Yeah, I mean and I and I don't think that this legislation is going to pass honestly before he gets out of office, but he wants to give federal employees 6 weeks of paid leave after childbirth and allow workers to earn 7 paid sick days per year because when it comes to paid time off. I mean, whether we're talking about sickly vacation um, after childbirth or adoption, whatever it might be, and there's just so little of it in the United States across the board. Yeah, and I mean, this summer, it's definitely been back in the news for a couple of reasons. One is that it's become a campaign trail issue, as you might expect. Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are both advocating for it, although uh, Clinton said she doesn't think that we could get mandatory family leave at this point in our nation's uh, existence. And after reading up for this podcast, I agree with that. Yeah, we are. It's more it's not an uphill battle. It's like a directly like side of a building uphill battle. I mean, it's straight up. And it's been historically a very partisan issue. So for Republicans on the campaign trail right now, you're probably not going to hear much about supporting a federal, you know, family, paid family leave policy. Well, yeah, and political divisions aside, as we were saying, it so often has to be painted as a family leave issue, not as a maternity leave issue, because there's this attitude and generally always has been that it's like, women, you did this to yourself. Pregnancy is a disability. It's gross. You should hide it away. You're not going to be a good worker if you get pregnant. We don't want to hire you. You're never going to come back in full force. Like, you're going to expect us to, like, give you all this stuff. It's going to kill our economy. I hate this fictional boss right now, by I know. the way. Well, you should. And but it exists like in shades. This fictional boss's uh rant exists in in shades throughout our country. People in business are just generally like not down with helping women come back to work due to a pregnancy. And also too enable men to be active and engaged fathers from the get-go, either by not providing for paternity leave or not challenging a workplace culture Hmm. where guys are expected to not take their paternity leave. You take a couple days off and then you get back to work. But on the bright side, Caroline, Netflix. What about Netflix? Everyone's been talking about how in August... Netflix announced unlimited paid parental leave for up to a year. We posted it on our Facebook page for Stuff Mom Never Told You, mm-hmm. saying this is 
fantastic way to go, Netflix. Yeah, except it's only for the salaried employees. Oh. Yeah, it's only for the people who are on salary working in the streaming division. You've got 400 to 500 lower wage hourly workers over in the DVD distribution section that don't get the benefit. They also don't benefit from that whole Netflix unlimited vacation day policy that salaried employees enjoy. And this is our first glimpse into that socioeconomic layer of paid family leave as well. And then more recently, Marissa Meyer, Yahoo CEO, was back in the news in September because uh, she announced that she's having twins. Congratulations. But she also mentioned in her announcement she posted on Tumblr, quote, I plan to approach the pregnancy and delivery as I did with my son three years ago, taking limited time away and working throughout. And this launched a thousand headlines and blog posts. And I'll tell you, Caroline, when I first read it, my thought was simply, oh, okay, she's simply, she's not telling us this. She's telling Yahoo investors this to not freak out. She's going to be back on the job. Okay. But it, it, it's not okay for a lot of people. Yeah, people said that Meyer was setting a poor example for the rest of her Yahoo employees. They are offered up to 16 weeks of maternity leave, whether that's uh, having a baby, adopting a baby, fostering a child. Um, and they said, look, yeah, it's fine for you to do you. But really, you should be taking this maternity leave, taking this time to show your uh, subordinates that it's okay that they do the same. You are fostering a culture where it's not okay for people to take their family leave. And I totally see where that argument is coming from. I also see where arguments, you know, telling those people to quiet down and allow Meyer and her husband and family to determine what is best for them to yeah. to do just that. But I mean, the fact that this sparks so much conversation and debate really gets to the maternity leave mess that we're in, because if there were more options, if there was more provision for people expanding their families, mm-hmm. would we worry so much about what one person is doing with her pregnancy? Well, that's that's exactly it. I mean, I think so many people in the tech industry in particular are worried about this example that Meyer is supposedly setting because according to Fortune magazine in October 2014, more than 10% of women who had left the tech industry did so because of maternity leave policy issues. Others cited a lack of flexible work arrangements or unsupportive work environments that Basically, indirectly, we're telling these people tech isn't for you. This industry isn't for you. So that's why so many people are saying you're setting a bad example when really like, yes, we should be absolutely concerned and talk about the policies that individual companies and employers set in the expectations that they indirectly set for their employees. But this is obviously a bigger issue. As Kristen was talking about toward the top of the podcast, the United States is one of the only countries in the world, aside from, what is it, Papua New Guinea, and is Suriname one of them, too? Maybe Suriname. Uh, that offers no federally mandated paid maternity leave, and the U.S. is one of just nine countries in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development that have no policies in place for fathers. And compare that to how maternity time off isn't just 
across government policy that you see, you know, enacted all over the world, except for the U.S., basically. But it's also a cross-cultural cornerstone. Uh, this was something coming from uh, an investigative piece published in In These Times, um, where they talked to Malin Eberhard Gran, who's a Norwegian public health scholar who's compiled a cross-cultural comparison of post natal practices. And she told in these times, quote, throughout history and all over the world, people have tended to carve out a minimum of at least six weeks in which women are exempt from responsibilities other than childcare. And that can take all sorts of forms, whether it is a woman going to live with her mother or mother coming to live with her. Um, I mean, it's, it's just something that we, <laughs> we have done that we have kind of established globally is a, is a good thing for new baby and new, new parents. Yeah. So many cultures in general, but countries and governments have indicated that, uh, pregnancy and, uh, Maternity, it's, it's not that it's a sacred time, but it's a time that is absolutely necessary to give families a chance to bond, recover, uh, learn about their new lives with this new child that they've brought into their homes. And in the U.S., we tend to think of it as just like, okay, well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get back to work. Because the closest thing the U.S. has to a federal policy for this is the Family Medical Leave Act, which allows up to 12 weeks of leave per year with restrictions that we'll get into. And that leave that you take is unpaid. And 40% of paid workers in the United States are not covered by the FMLA because they're working for a private business with fewer than 50 employees and have not been working and or have not been working at that job for at least a year, all of which are requirements to even qualify for this unpaid 12 weeks off. Yeah, and the In These Times article cites Bureau of Labor Statistics Numbers saying that about 13% of U.S. private sector workers have access to any paid family leave, and only 1 in 20 of the lowest-earning workers in our country have it. And these depressing numbers only get more depressing when you contrast them with the situation in Sweden, where parents get 16 months of paid not even unpaid, but 16 months of paid parental leave, or Finland, where after nine months of paid leave, the mother or the father can take or split additional paid, again, childcare leave until the child's third birthday. I just use so many italics in what I just said because it's mind-boggling. And, and I don't know, I mean, we have this attitude in this country that that's like what, that that's lazy and it's going to damage business. I don't understand how these things develop. Yeah, we do. That mindset is, is exactly how we got into this situation. Um, and uh, quick side note, Caroline, I was tweeting a little bit about this research and the dismal state of affairs. And one of our international listeners tweeted back at us saying, wait, is this still the case in the U.S.? Surely it's not. That has to be wrong. Nope, that is exactly the way it is still. So if you're wondering, as we were, how we got to this point, 
The answer begins with World War One, and that's when attitudes really start shifting in terms of uh, paid leave for women, because this is when you have the first big wave of women going to work when the guys are off at war. But then that really starts happening in earnest after World War II. And this is also when you see the split between European countries mm-hmm. getting very generous with paid leave and the U.S. being like, we don't need it. Yeah, you have to keep in mind that in parts of Europe, populations were decimated by war. And so a lot of women stayed in their jobs that they entered during the war. And so in the aftermath of World War II, European countries really stepped up paid leave to incentivize population growth and simultaneously rebuild the workforce. Meanwhile, uh, in the U.S., men were returning to their jobs and married women were basically shuttled back home and paid leave provisions were de-incentivized. And as a piece we found on NPR really hammered home, you have that post-World War II climate coupled with business interests that really left maternity leave out in the cold. Historically, groups including the National Federation of Independent Businesses, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and the Society for Human Resource Management have consistently opposed these kinds of paid leave policies, arguing that it would put an undue financial strain on businesses and force, quote, one size fits all approaches, basically saying, you know, you're going to have all these entrepreneurs who are going to have to be paying, you know, these exorbitant paid leave for these women to go have babies. And then once they come back with their babies, they're not going to be as productive workers. And it's just going to crush our economy. But at the same time, too, you have these deep-pocketed business interests like these kinds of groups that have spent a lot of money lobbying officials to not support these policies. And that's how it becomes this bipartisan issue. I mean, maybe I'm like living in some weird sci-fi utopia, but you are, Caroline. Surprise. I know. None of this is real. But you would think that why wouldn't you take that money and advocate for policies that work if you're convinced that maternity leave or or paid family leave of of any kind is going to hurt business why not put your money into things that actually can help everyone policies that work with business and help families at the same time because women have so long been considered a niche interest yeah and so diametrically opposed to professionalism and business. And Peter Capelli, who's a professor of management at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, was talking to NPR about this and attributes sort of the underlying philosophy to American exceptionalism and this pattern of us identifying with the class that we aspire to. And so, I mean, if you if you think about it, like there is this very patriotic undercurrent of the idea of small businesses and entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and the whole bootstraps philosophy, the American dream. The American dream has no time for paid maternity leave. Yeah, and I th- I believe it was him, too, who was saying that whereas in another country somebody might be considered a worker in the larger system, here they're considered small-time entrepreneurs who would be hurt by any type of policy like this. So it's not as if we don't have any 
provisions at all for leave. It's just that they're paltry and there just haven't been that many. And they're relatively new. Yeah. I mean, into the 1960s, women were just quietly expected to leave work once they were visibly pregnant. Um, this is also when you have a few states, California, Rhode Island, and New Jersey in particular, that began mandating paid maternity leave. But they're framing pregnancy as a disability in order to make that happen. Well, and didn't that have a lot to do with you couldn't have men suing for the same type of time off that if pregnancy is classified as a disability, well, then, oh, OK, well, then that is just a woman thing. Right. Otherwise, it becomes sex discrimination. Right. And so speaking of that, uh, in 1965, women begin bringing pregnancy discrimination cases to the newly formed Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which, as we move into the 70s, said women should be protected from pregnancy discrimination. Yeah, and the 70s were a significant decade for pregnancy discrimination legislation. Um, the Supreme Court, for instance, ruled twice in the 70s that pregnancy discrimination is not sex discrimination. And this is important for figuring out sort of how we've developed this legal framework around pregnancy discrimination in the United States. One of these cases, for instance, upheld a California disability insurance program that did not cover pregnant women. And in one of the court opinions, SCOTUS said, quote, there's no risk from which men are protected and women are not. Likewise, there is no risk from which women are protected and men are not. The program divides potential recipients into two groups, pregnant women and non-pregnant women. So basically, the court was like, ladies, 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 <laughs> you brought this on yourself, and the cost of dealing with it is kind of up to you to figure out. Which, again, is so mind-boggling. And I know I already talked about this earlier in the show, but like, oh, God, pregnancy is not just like a a one-person thing a lot of the time. Uh, it often is part of planning your family. Yeah, I mean, and if we're talking about the workforce, I mean, isn't that kind of how the future workforce comes about? I don't know. It's starting to sound awfully socialist, Kristen. I mean, you'd think that these judges would be very pro-robot, you know? But then in 1974, we have the case Cleveland Board of Education v. LaFleur, that determined that it's illegal to force pregnant women to take maternity leave on the assumption that they're incapable of working because of their physical condition. Right. That was overturning a previous law that the Supreme Court had upheld in 1908 that restricted the hours that women worked in the interest of protecting them from employer exploitation. So you've got women working in factories, you've got long hours, maybe you don't have a weekend, women are just standing on their feet all day. And so in that regard, it was almost like, you poor helpless women, we have to protect you. Yeah, it was very paternalistic and also detrimental for a lot of women of color, especially, and working class women who are like, no, 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 I have to earn a wage. Mm -hmm. Please don't cap my hours. Um, then if we hop back to 1976, the tax code is updated to offer a break for working families with a dependent child. So the government's being a little more generous. And then finally, in 1978, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act is passed, covering hiring, 
firing, promotion, and pay. And this is actually a case of politicians kind of coming around and, you know, not stepping on the toes of the Supreme Court, but clarifying things for the better, at least. Uh, they classified pregnancy discrimination as a form of sex discrimination and directed employees to treat pregnant employees like everyone else with similar ability or inability to work. So basically, the government looked at what the court had ruled and was like, okay, no, no, no. Pregnancy is no worse than losing your arm on the assembly line or any other kind of disabling condition. Um, so we need to protect those workers in some kind of way. But it still left loopholes for businesses to sneak around as long as they're discriminating on the basis of ability rather than the pregnancy itself. Yeah, and so classifying pregnancy as a disability rather than focusing on the gender equality issue has been the quote-unquote safest way to protect those workers. Otherwise, like we said, men might say, oh, well, I, I deserve this time too. And I didn't know that. I mean, I had been really curious as to why legally pregnancy is considered mm-hmm. a disability. That's, that's pretty insulting. I know. <laughs> like, really? Um, but... We had to do it in order, I mean, I guess in order to protect pregnant women, even though at the same time, it seems very catch-22 because it's not like classifying it as a disability and, you know, including it with provisions in the FMLA, which we're going to talk about in just a second, has really helped out that many pregnant women. But now I'm just getting ahead of myself. Um, so this really jumped out to me, uh, a paper in the Duke Law Journal by Deborah L. Brake and Joanna L. Grossman noted that the Pregnancy Discrimination Act was enacted to, quote, enable women to maintain labor force attachments throughout pregnancy and childbirth. Which is so important. Which is so important. And yet, and yet, and yet, Kristen's shaking her hands. My hands waving in the air. There is no further provisions to make sure that while, yes, we might be able to stay in the labor force, maybe we aren't being compensated at all. There's no, there's no financial provision, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. We're like, we're making sure your body can stay there. But whether you have enough money to care for that new child or even to care for yourself, again, that's kind of up to you. Yeah, well, so in the 1980s, as, you know, it's Melanie Griffith in Working Girl era, right? Shoulder pads and big hair. More women are in the workplace. And more workplaces begin integrating flexible work schedules and employer-based childcare options. These became big issues for workers once we do have more women not only entering the workforce, but staying there because you've got at this time housing prices going up, men's wages stagnating. And so how are, how am I going to afford to live and stay in this house and stay in the middle class and continue buying like shoes and groceries? Well, you know, the wife's got to go to work and workplaces doing that, integrating flexible work schedules and possibly, you know, providing childcare is totally fine for that Reagan era individualism where it's like, leave it up to the businesses um, because it was seen as way too big government for any kind of federal policy mm-hmm. to be enacted. 
Yeah, and of course you still hear echoes of that now. It's not like that idea of big government has gone away by any means. And then in 1987, you get another Supreme Court case that upheld a California law requiring most employers to grant pregnant women four months of unpaid disability leave and the right to return to their same job. And then finally, finally, in 1993, we get the most significant federal policy passed thus far with the Family and Medical Leave Act, which again mandates up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave for childbearing or family care over a 12-month period. Employees, though, must have been working for one year at that job, at least 1,250 hours over the past 12 months, to get really precise, and the business has to have at least 50 employees. So in other words, women who are working part-time or for a lot of small businesses are not going to have any access to it. We've already talked about how a lot of people in the U.S., a lot of workers, don't even have access to FMLA provisions. And if we take a closer look, though, at how this policy was passed, we get even more insight into, again why there is such a maternity leave mess in the U.S. And we'll talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. So let's take a closer look at the Family and Medical Leave Act. Uh, This is coming from a paper from the National Partnership for Women and Families. So there had been a lot of fears about too many regulations permitting paid or unpaid family leave. Uh, There were a lot of concerns that it would have a huge detrimental effect on businesses, their costs, their profitability, their innovation. But studies have shown that the FMLA has had either no or a very, very small negligible effect on these things. Granted, we need more data on the money saved by the people being able to return to their jobs. But, I mean, I think that's a good place to start by saying, hey, by the way, the FMLA is not costing businesses their existence. And consider that, too, against the background of the nine years that it took just to pass this, to pass this unpaid leave law. I mean, this really started... In 1984, um, as that paper uh, Caroline mentioned notes, uh, this was when people first saw the possibility of a, quote, comprehensive gender-neutral family and medical leave on a national basis happening. And it was because of the federal district court striking down California's maternity leave law as sex discriminating against men. And when these people first started trying to craft this possible legislation, labor support was lukewarm at best. And a lot of politicians just scoffed at it as a, quote unquote, girly bill. They considered it very trivial. Women were a niche interest. Why would we want to do this. And, and two, when we're thinking about these labor forces, a lot of the more traditional union reps were men. I mean, yeah. these are a lot of men having to be convinced that <laughs> essentially like caring for their, their wives and the mother of their children is smart legislation. Yeah, it took a lot, a lot of grassroots efforts and a lot of coalition building and groups coming together 
to convince people that leave is important, that medical leave, whether it's for maternity reasons or for other family illness reasons, was important. And so you had to get women within the trade unions being vocal. They were instrumental in making this a relevant interest to the unions at large. And this also is not the uh, Federal Maternity Leave Act. It is a family medical, family and medical, excuse me, leave act because they had to steer it away from being seen as women's interest legislation. In the same way as we heard it echoed in President Obama's State Mm -hmm. of the Union address where he said, listen, this isn't just a women's issue. This is an everybody issue, which, yes, that's true. But it says something that we need to emphasize or should I say de-emphasize its direct impact on women in order to make it more palatable to people. Um, So, for instance, They even got the U.S. Catholic Conference on board by positioning it as something that could potentially reduce abortions because women could receive better postnatal care Um, in terms of broadening it to be family and medical rather than just maternal. They got the AARP on board uh, by requiring expanding possible coverage to seniors and not just focusing it on babies who always steal all of our attention. But, of course, this was another way for people on the right to strike back because they say, oh, well, now you want to cover old people and young people? That's going to be way too expensive. Man, what jerks. <laughs> like at Christmas time, I'm just imagining, is there like sitting around the tree with like the grandparents and the babies just like s- staring at them like, <laughs> seriously, man? You- are we that much of a problem? Can we please have a piece of the Christmas pie? Like, no, buy your own presents. I feel like we just narrated a political cartoon. I think so. <laughs> um, well, yeah, so as a result of all of this working together, the coalition ultimately included support from groups that represented, yes, women and children, but also organized labor, seniors, disabled people, progressive businesses, in addition to religious organizations. So there were obviously a very multifaceted group of people and organizations, and it really took that to get any sort of leave passed. Yeah, I mean, and it also took the legislation being repeatedly vetoed. Uh, President Bush, the senior, vetoed it not once, but twice. And Republicans consistently decried it as government overreach and also a burden on the taxpayers and also a potential burden on these precious businesses. Um, but then <laughs> President Clinton comes into office, President Clinton the first, possibly, um, comes into office, and this is the first law that he signed, which I did not realize, and it became effective August 5th, 1993. But that's kind of still since... 93, the best that we've got. It's not like this has revolutionized maternal care in the U.S. Um, we are seeing more recently more focus on state level paid family leave laws. Uh, California passed theirs in 2002 and Rhode Island and New Jersey have followed suit. And as, you know, the in these times article pointed out, research has found that businesses in those states have not collapsed as a result. Yeah, and this is incredibly important. I mean, beyond the fact that, yes, it's great that these states are are taking care of their people, but it's so important because it's going to take 
uh, as a lot of people were writing about that we read, it's going to take these states being incubators for this type of policy, this legislation, for the federal government to eventually one day, the giant federal government to eventually be like, oh, okay, maybe we should do this. I'm not saying that that's going to happen tomorrow. It's going to take a lot more states doing this, I think, to change minds. But it's incredibly important that these certain states are leading the way. Because hopefully they're leading the way toward a future far removed from the situation for far too many new parents these days. Because if you live in the U.S. and you aren't a salaried employee who receives parental leave benefits, then you're going to have to cobble together a maternity leave ranging from maybe a couple of days to a couple of weeks. And even if you are able to qualify for FMLA benefits, if your baby is born early, you might be scrambling to figure it out. Or if there are any kind of health complications. I mean, there are just so many possible scenarios where things will not go according to your leave plan. Yeah. And even if you have maternity leave, paid or unpaid at your company, you're still going to be under so much pressure not to take it or not to take all of it. Uh, the Daily Beast included some data from the National Center for Health Statistics, which found that from 2006 to 2008, nearly a third of employed women did not report taking any maternity leave after their last pregnancy. But the thing is... Studies have linked abbreviated leaves to postpartum depression, to infant mortality. They've seen in studies, international studies, that the countries over time that have given more paid leave to parents and families, those infant mortality rates have gone down. There's so many personal but also hugely important reasons to make it okay to sanction uh, parental leave after pregnancy. But those difficulties, too, are often more pronounced among women of color. Um, women of color make up, for instance, a huge um, uh, huge majority of domestic workers in this country, and domestic workers are excluded from the FMLA. These are nannies, house cleaners, and elder caregivers who can't take a sick day if they have the flu. They can't take time off to take care of the kid and still get paid. And that certainly means that they can't have any sort of paid or unpaid maternity leave. Right. I mean, it just seems like this whole system is really, you know, dividing the population into the haves and the have nots, because usually, as in the case with Netflix, for instance, it's those salary jobs that tend to require more education that provide the generous benefits. But when you get down to more of the hourly workers, the people who might not have had as much access to education, did not have as many, you know, resources growing up, who are then struggling when it comes time for them to be planning their families, they don't have any kind of provisions whatsoever. So they have to sort of figure out what their own build their own network essentially to care for themselves and for their kid as much as they can. And sometimes that means having a child and going back to work the next Monday. Yeah, the In These Times article seriously almost had me crying at my desk reading about moms who have to make incredible efforts to be at work or at multiple jobs and have no time to even sleep, let alone like really take care of their kids. And that article was also one of the many that pointed out that 
it's the people who earn the least and have the least education who also have the least access to maternity leave, paid or unpaid. Uh, we found that 80% of college graduates took at least six weeks off to care for a new baby, but only 54% of women without college degrees did so, and that's coming from the Department of Labor. And from everything that we know about early childhood development and how crucial those early years are for brain development and learning and really getting off to a good start. It seems like it is those workers who need paid parental leave more than anybody else in a way. You know, I mean, it just seems like we're feeding now a generational cycle. Yeah, that's absolutely. That's what was so disheartening about the In These Times article was it just seems like we are trapping our own people in cycles of not being able to give enough care to their kids, being overworked and underpaid at the same time. And listen, we completely support the entrepreneurial spirit of people out there. Absolutely. But it would be great for all of us if we could somehow, you know, support that, but also support parents. Well, sure, because you get paid family leave. Careers get to stay on track as do paychecks and career trajectories, that means that uh, translates to a lower poverty rate. That translates to a more stable family. That's That translates to that strong workforce and innovation that people are clamoring for and, and using as an excuse to not give paid leave. And now I just really want to pack up and move to Sweden, Caroline. <laughs> Seriously, I'll get a good jacket. I'll be ready to go. And now, listeners, we really want to hear from you on this issue. We know a lot of you have kids and are curious to know what kind of experience you had, positive, negative, neutral, uh, when it came to parental leave. And guys, too, this is an issue for you as well. So we want to know your thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. Caroline, as a chronic to-do list maker, I can tell you firsthand that those lists can seem out of control. So much to do, so little time. But here's one thing we can all check off our to-do list. Going to the post office. And that's all thanks to Stamps.com. Because, as we know, with Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer and printer. Stamps.com will even send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you need for any letter or package at any class of mail. You will never waste valuable time going to the post office again. You can do everything right from your desk with Stamps.com. Print the postage you need, put it on your letter or package, and then just hand it to your mail carrier, and you're done. Better yet, right now, you can use our promo code STUFF to get a special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 worth of free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in stuff. That's stamps.com. Enter stuff. And now back to the show. Okay, I have a letter here from Kai. Kai writes, I'm a longtime listener from Australia, but this is my first time writing to you. I just finished listening to your episode on peeing standing up. 
As a genderqueer identified person who lived as male for a number of years, I tried a lot of different STP or stand to pee products. This was over a decade ago and the options weren't great back then. They were mostly homemade by friends of friends or some guy my friend met online and I never managed to find one that worked for me. I have very large labia minora which always got in the way of getting a good seal with the device. No matter what I tried, I always found I had far more urine run down my legs than exit the tube as it was supposed to. I resorted to using disabled toilets most of the time which was not ideal. Now that I'm not attempting to pass as male, I'm tempted to try some of the fuds as the ones I've looked at in response to your program seem to have more scope to cope with my shape. They're not all designed to have a tiny discreet connection while passing as a penis. So thanks for giving me the heads up that it may be worth trying again. Love the show, keep up the interesting topics. And thanks, Kai. Well, I've got a letter here from Jody who writes, I was so grateful to you both for doing the Lavender Menace episode. I was raised by two women who raised me in the 80s and 90s to have many of the Lavender Menace principles of feminism. We didn't live in a commune, but we lived very much in a world without men. Largely because as time passed and my parents lost touch with their men friends, they didn't reintroduce any new men into their lives. And she goes on to say, I was somewhat disappointed that you characterized our separatist principles as living away from men or excluding men because that wasn't how I experienced it. My experience was that my parents just wanted to live with other women. Men weren't being actively excluded. Rather, they simply weren't being invited to join them. My family never sat around talking about how we would build a world without men or how we hated men or how we didn't need men. We simply never talked about men at all. The notion that these women wanted to live away from men places men at the center of the separatist movement, where men, in fact, just had no place at all. I am naturally tentative to say that this was always the case, but for the most part, the separationist I was raised knowing focused on building spaces that were assumed for women and just didn't invite men to enter. The name of the bookstore my parents went to wasn't Not For Men Land, it was Her Land. The connection to the historical structure that men can enter every space while women must be asked permission to enter guides this principle. The goal was to create spaces where women didn't need to ask permission to enter and be and where women could do whatever they felt like doing. There are four men spaces everywhere, places where women simply don't go because we give men their space to have agency and that isn't a function of women. Shouldn't the notion of four women's spaces be just as normal? And Jody, thank you so much for enlightening us on that. And that's a great point that separationists weren't necessarily, you know, actively excluding, but rather just not inviting. They just didn't send men a, an invitation to the birthday party or any party. <laughs> So thanks for your insights, Jody, And to everyone who's emailed us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with our sources, so you too can cry about maternity leave in the United States, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 